are continuing following Jesus together in the Gospel of John. And this morning, as we now are in chapter 7, the subtitle is The Feast of Booths, Part 1. And Lord willing, we will finish out chapter 7 next time together. So I'm going to go ahead and read the first three verses just to set God's word in front of us. We'll pray and then we'll jump right into the text this morning. So look with me at John chapter 7 verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And so his brothers said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. Well, and I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> we'll get back to it in a moment. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are eager to follow Jesus. But Lord, we confess that at times we're also not eager to follow Jesus. So we thank you for the gift of your Bible and specifically the Gospel of John and the gift that it is to follow Jesus in your word and that as we observe him and hear from him and see what he does and see how the crowds respond to him, that you would, by your spirit, provoke our own souls to yearn for the Savior, to long for him, to want to do your will, to savor how wonderful and mighty you are. So to that end, Lord, would you accomplish that and so much more in all of our hearts this morning. Would you save the lost? Would you strengthen the faint-hearted? Would you embolden all of us to proclaim the glories of the Savior who hung on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave for our justification and more? So Lord, accomplish your way among us this morning. Would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight? O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. Bible beatdown. I don't know if you've ever heard that sophisticated phrase before, Bible beatdown. I have known pastors who are characterized as Bible beatdowners. I have known Christians of the same. What does that mean? A Bible beatdown is when someone weaponizes the truth of Scripture in such a way as to beat you down and cut you up, completely devoid of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what a Bible beatdown is. It's when someone self-righteously uses the righteous word for unrighteous purposes. It's when a person uses self-righteously the righteous word for unrighteous purposes. Now, because as believers, all of us have remaining sin, we can misuse scripture this way. We can use the Bible to hate our enemies rather than love our enemies and therefore disobey Jesus with the Bible. Because what does Jesus tell us? Love your enemies. There's a way to speak the truth in love, and there's a way to speak the truth under the guise of love that is entirely unloving. Well, that's the characteristic of the people that Jesus is going to interact with here in John 7. 
John 7 is going to prove to be a familiar text to us. Familiar in the sense that we see increasing opposition and rejection to Jesus. But in John 7, depending upon how you count it, there's at least seven episodes, many episodes or instances in this gospel account of people rejecting Jesus, murmuring against Jesus, grumbling against Jesus, doubting Jesus, mocking and shaming Jesus, and more. And we will see chief among these are the, the Jews, which is John's way of saying the religious leaders, of doing a Bible beat down on Jesus. And, well, you might imagine how that's going to go for them. So this is where we're going this morning. We have three points. Here they are for taking notes. Number one, self-righteous rejections of Jesus. And we're actually going to survey the entire text this morning of the first 24 verses. Self-righteous rejections of Jesus, survey of the whole text, long point. And then point number two, we're going to take a step back and we're going to look at the irony of the theological setting. What John, inspired by the Spirit, is doing on a setting level. You'll see what I mean when we get there. And then we're going to close briefly. The last point, the third point is quick. Three implications for our lives drawn from the text and the message this morning. So if you would, look at verse 1. I'm going to read all 24 verses of our passage this morning. And we're going to see, please note, self-righteous rejections of Jesus. After this, scripture reads, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For, John narrates in verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. So Jesus said to them, verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, Jesus remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about Jesus among the people, while some said, He's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. And yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If, anyone, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak, I'm speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. 
but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So that's the context this morning. It does continue to the remainder of the chapter, but this is the first series of duels that Jesus engages with, not just his brothers, but then we saw the Jews, and then we saw the crowds. Now, in one sense, as you hear these words, everything that we read of has been increasingly clear ever since the end of John chapter 2, when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, and there was that duel. And so, in one sense, this is familiar to us. The Gospel of John unfolds, People increasingly mock Jesus and reject Jesus. And now even his own half-brothers, who likely knew of the abandonment of the crowds from the previous chapter, their mockery of go and do what you're doing publicly is uniquely dripping with a sarcastic disrespect because not just a few verses previous in the previous chapter is when almost all the disciples and crowds abandoned Jesus because of Jesus' teaching. And it was reduced down to the core 12 and probably a number of women and some others. So here in our text, the Feast of Booths is at hand. Jesus' brothers mock and shame and challenge him to openly reveal himself to the world. And it's not because they believe in Jesus. So your first reading might make you think, oh, they're supporting their brother Jesus. They want him to go. They're trying to think of an Instagram campaign and the Facebook ad advertisements he could do to bolster his public presence. That's not the case. They don't believe Jesus. His brothers are treating him similar, very similar, maybe you noticed it, to the same way that Joseph's brothers treated him way back in the end of the book of Genesis. What did the brothers do to Joseph? They hated him because he was a dreamer, because he had prophetic dreams from God, spoke of those dreams. They were offended by what God said through Joseph, so they beat Joseph up. They threw Joseph into a pit. They sold Joseph into slavery. Jesus' biological brothers here, his half-brothers, are functionally doing the same. And this, this reality of his brothers factors into what seems like a tension that you may have noticed when I read, or maybe you've noticed when you read it in preparation for this week, there seems to be a tension in verse 8 when the brothers are telling Jesus, hey, go up to the feast, and then Jesus says, I'm not going up to the feast. And then in verse 10, what does Jesus do? He goes up to the feast. Is Jesus a liar? No. No. No, he's not. So, so let's let's press into this for a moment. There's at least four factors at work here that show that Jesus is not lying, 
Number one, Jesus made clear that his brothers are his enemies. And it's true from scripture, it seems that they do get converted after Christ rises from the grave. But at this point, they're his enemies, and they want Jesus to go public to shame him. Their motives are false motives. They don't have good intentions. And this connects back to what Jesus said, well, was narrated way back in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, listen to this umbrella statement about Jesus' interaction with unbelievers. It says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, even the crowds that followed him, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So the flip side of this coin, his brothers are telling him what to do, the flip side of the coin is that the Gospel of John is clear, Jesus only obeys one person, and that's God the Father. He only does what God the Father says, and, there's, and what the timetable that the God the Father gives. So Jesus is not conceding to his brothers, he's listening to the Father. Number two, the text already told us, the religious leaders, in verse one, they're seeking to kill Jesus. So there's some relationship between the brothers, maybe the brothers didn't know that the religious leaders were seeking to kill Jesus, but Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that, that Satan is the prince of the power of the air and at work in unbelievers' lives. And so there seems to be an implication here that the brothers were, were in one sense, cooperating with the Jews unknowingly for Jesus' death. And that's why he knows, I'm not going to listen to what you're saying. Number three, the interaction with his brothers, maybe it's not familiar to you. You know why? It's nearly identical to Jesus' interaction with Mary at the beginning of John 2. Remember just the family and his brothers and his disciples are at a wedding and they run out of wine. And remember what Mary does? She talks to Jesus and asks Jesus to fix the problem um, because for Jesus to make wine or figure it out. And Jesus says to both groups, his mother and brothers in both locations, my time is not yet. And Jesus appears to reject both of their requests. But then Jesus, on one sense, proceeds with their request. The difference is that Mary seems to have faith while his brothers are his enemies. And lastly, and I think uh, clearly, John, as he writes, is a master of double meaning. He's a master of double meaning. And a master of contrast. So... Um, it seems that there's a double meaning at play here when Jesus is responding to his brother saying, I'm not going up to this feast because he says, my time has not yet come. And we know that's a reference in the Gospel of John about Jesus' forthcoming cross work. So in a similar way to the end of John chapter 2, when the, there was that argument, the dispute, and the religious leaders were confused about when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And they only had eyes to see the physical temple and say, it's taken 46 years to build this. How are you going to do it? And then John narrates for us, he was speaking about the temple of his body. I think something very similar is taking place here. The problem is John doesn't narrate for us. Okay, so, so that was technical. But what I want to show you is that Jesus is not lying. And there's more that can be said. 
Admittedly, it's less clear how these verses fit together, but given those factors in this context, no, we have not found sin in Jesus and an error in the Bible. We just have to be good uh, theologians to read the details of the text and see that there's more going on than meets the eye, and Jesus appears to be having a double meaning about his cross work, death, burial, and resurrection. As I mentioned earlier, chapter 7 is broken up with at least seven main episodes of confusion and rejection by the people. So when Jesus says to his brothers in verse 6, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil, what he says here is true about all the criticisms about the criticism of his teaching that we read of in verses 14 to 20. Where did this man get his learning? He didn't go to seminary. How can he be teaching us? And it's true about the religious leaders seeking to kill Jesus. They hate him. This is the first place in John where the, word, the term world is used negatively. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But here he says in verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but the world hates me. That's an amazing contrast. God loves the world. The world hates Jesus in their unregenerate state. And so the religious leaders are seeking to kill Jesus because Jesus healed a man back on the Sabbath in chapter 5. It's one of the things when you read the Bible and when you read the Gospel of John, you have to read in large chunks because large chunks are where the connections reside. So when he says in verse 22, when Jesus says, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So, so Jesus is exposing here their Bible beat-down attitudes. Jesus is exposing that the people made wrong judgments about God's word and ways. You see, they thought they could improve God's word. And in this case, they thought they could improve the Sabbath with many man-made rules. What maybe, let's, 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 let's presume they had good motives. What initially seemed like um, a kindness or a, um, a love for God. Hey, we're, we want to be so careful not to break God's law. We're going to add additional barriers and layers and rules to God's law. On the surface, it looks like a good idea. And it's almost always a bad idea. When you require it for others. That's what self-righteousness and legalism is. Legalism has a number of definitions, but one of them is when you take an area of freedom or command, whatever it is, when God says something and you begin to add things to it that create distance from the text and require it of others, that's the definition of legalism. In this case, these guys were unbelievers. They didn't even believe the word. But they made man-made rules. They thought they could use their rules to add to God's word because they thought they could earn God's favor. 
they thought maybe they wouldn't have admitted it, but this is what happens to us. When we create rules and live in these rules and say, see, Lord, I didn't click the click, I didn't look the look, I didn't say the say or do the thing or whatever it is, when we think that our obedience puts God in our debt and he owes us, that's a sign of legalism and it's a sign that we're not living gospel-centered and driven lives. We're not operating out of the free grace of forgiveness that we've already been given. Instead, we're trying to earn more forgiveness and favor with God because of obedience. That's not how it works. And that's why they stumbled over what God's word taught. They thought that God would owe them because they were so good, but they were so wrong. And when they were trying to be good at being good apart from God, that's bad. So their self-righteous ways prevented them from doing the very righteousness God would have them do, and Jesus rebukes them for it. They should have been rejoicing that a broken man was healed on the Sabbath. But their religious rules were so religious, they got to the point where, well, they were wanting to kill Jesus because of what he had done, namely made a man whole. And so his argument is, listen, if the law can be broken by circumcising a, a baby, a male, a, a male baby, you have to clarify these days, by circumcising a boy on the eighth day, they weren't breaking the Sabbath. By doing that, they were obeying the role of the Sabbath and Moses' law. So their self-righteousness prevented them from loving their neighbor as themselves and from loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their self-righteousness blinded them to the love that God was showing. They didn't want it because they hated him. For Jesus' brothers, to the crowds, to the religious leaders, their unbelief and self-righteousness rendered them unable to truly understand and therefore misuse God's word. And this is why they wanted to kill the word made flesh. So that's an overview of the text. Now let's take a step back. Point number two, the other layer to this passage, the irony of the theological setting. Look at verses 2, 10, and 14. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast... Jesus also went up, not publicly, but in private. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Those three texts. In those three texts, John is very careful to make sure that we know all that I just said, all that we just looked at from Scripture, is taking place in a very specific setting. The setting is clear. It's the Feast of Booths, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles, which means tents. And when you read your Old Testament, it'll use both terms, Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. It just depends upon how it's translated. What is the Feast of Booths? Listen to Leviticus 23. Now, uh, write that text down, and you can go look at it later and read the fuller context but I'm summarizing verses 40 to 43, or rather I'm going to read them to us so we have a better understanding of what is the Feast of Booths, 
why are they celebrating it, and what's the big deal? Is it even a big deal? Guess what? It's a big deal. Leviticus 23, verse 40. So it's already been talking about this feast. But uh, Moses is speaking, and he says, You shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths or tents or tabernacles. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Verse 43, here's why. So that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the Feast of Booths was one of the few key annual commemorative festivals. All Israel was to assemble in Jerusalem, and it would assemble around, so Jerusalem, it's on a hill, it's the city of David, the temple is there, so that whole area is called Mount Zion, and so when the multitudes of people would come, they would ultimately have to camp around the hills and sort of surround Jerusalem to make it happen. So all Israel was to assemble in Jerusalem around the temple for a camping trip. This would be the precedent for church campouts. All the nation gathered together to camp out together for a week. And it was a festival of celebration. Other details were that they were supposed to go out and collect produce and food from the land and bring it back in. Why? We saw that the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles was a reenactment of the Exodus and wilderness wanderings. That's the theological meaning of the festival. So if you had been a tradesman or a tradeswoman and going by Jerusalem during this time and you saw everybody camping out, it wasn't a self-explanatory event. God needs to define for us, as he does with everything, why God does what God does. In this case, they're camping not just to have a retreat. They're camping so as to both remember personally and teach their children of the great and monumental deliverance that God brought when he brought his people out of exiting Egypt, exodus from Egypt. That's the theological meaning of this festival. So looking back, the people of Israel were to remember their oppression. They were to remember their slavery. They were to remember their helplessness in Egypt and how God, with a mighty outstretched arm, saved and delivered and redeemed them through a mediator, the man Moses, and crushed the enemies who refused God's word, though ten times God gave them opportunity to repent, and they just hardened their hearts. But the festival did it only look backwards. If you've read the prophets, the answer is no. Why do I say that? The festival 
not only looked back at the Exodus, which was clear, you're going to remember the Exodus, but after Moses wrote and God rose up other prophets and they began to write, Isaiah through Malachi, they began to speak of another Exodus that was to come, these prophets did, every single one of them all over the place, especially in the minor prophets. They began to use the language that God used when he delivered Israel from from their physical slavery, begin to use those images, pictures, and language for a future second exodus to come. And it wasn't a second... Now, parts of it were physical. God would gather his people from the nations. But more so, it was a spiritual exodus that God's people would be delivered from oppression and slavery to their own sin-shaped hearts. So there would be deliverance from spiritual oppression, from Satan, sin, and death. Spiritual slavery from sin they'd be delivered from. They'd be delivered from their own rebellion from God. In fact, they'd be given new hearts. And a second exodus would culminate in a new heaven, a new earth, in which righteousness would dwell. So when they camped, if they knew their Bibles well, they were looking back to the first exodus and still awaiting the second exodus to come. They didn't know all the details of it. It was enigmatic and mysterious how the prophets spoke, but they knew a Messiah was coming. And they knew the Messiah would gather God's people from all the nations, and he would lead them in triumph, but also deliver them and change their hearts and usher in a new creation. They got parts of it, but not all of it. And so, Jesus. Jesus travels to Jerusalem secretly and privately. And this is what the city would have been alive doing. Kids running around and playing. People gathering those fruit from the splendid trees that we read. And breaking off palm branches and boughs of trees and taking uh, willow branches and building booths or temporary dwelling places that their families would camp in. There, there would have been laughter and singing. There would have been the sights, sounds, and smells of feasting and talk. At least there was supposed to be talk of, of grandpas and grandmas telling the grandkids and the grandkids' friends of the things that the Lord had done to give them a great deliverance in their past and the promises of a future Redeemer to come who will give an even greater deliverance in the future in a second exodus. That's what have, should have seen and heard. And in the book of Exodus, since the booths reenacts those 40 years of wilderness wanderings, do you remember when Israel camped, the arrangement of their camp? God would dwell in a tent. Do you remember that piece? God dwelt in a tent called a tabernacle. He dwelt in a tent called a tabernacle, similar word to one used here for booths. And when God would, his tent would be established, then all of Israel had prescribed um, campsite numbers. And they would camp around the whole jurisdiction like concentric circles around the tabernacle. In other words, God dwelt in the midst of his people. Do you think that that's important? That's important. Remember in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, God walked among them in the cool of the evening. 
before the fall. But in Genesis 3, after they were exiled, because of their sin, they were exiled from God's presence. They were exiled out of, they exited, in this case because of sin, from the Garden of Eden, and they were banished in the wilderness. They were in exile. So the Exodus, the book of Exodus, is about God coming to his people in exile, in their bondage to slavery, not only to just deliver them and say, you should have saved yourselves, but you can't. That's not what it was. No, God came to once again dwell with his people. So as God exiled his son Adam into the wilderness, now all these years later, God comes down in a fire cloud and through Moses to his son Israel, Exodus 3, to bring him out of exile and into a new Eden, a new promised land, the land of Israel. So in the Exodus, God has come to be with his people. So when God dwells in a tent, you're supposed to think of the same thing as God walking among Adam and Eve before the fall in the garden, albeit with many layers in it and a priesthood and sacrifices and more separating. But nonetheless, God was with his people. And the promise of the prophets is in the second Exodus, God was going to do it again. God would come down and dwell with his people again. And so Jesus, John 7, Israel is gathered around the temple, right? They're gathered all around, however many of them there were, multitudes, around the temple, which had replaced the tabernacle. But if you've been here any length of time, you know this also. When this first century episode happened, did God dwell in the temple? No, he did not. So when Moses builds the tent, the tabernacle, God's glory, glory, cloud, glory cloud, not gory, comes down. Much later when Solomon builds the temple, God's glory cloud leaves the tabernacle and goes into the temple. And then Ezekiel. If you read Ezekiel 10 and 11, after centuries of disobedience and sin, Ezekiel 10 and 11 portrays God's glory cloud lifting up from the Ark of the Covenant, moving to the threshold, moving to the outer court of the temple, heading east to an eastern hill, and then off to never be seen again. God exiled himself because of the sin of the people, especially the sin of the elders of the land. So Ezekiel 10, 11 depict God leaving. So when Israel comes back to the land after Babylon and the Nebuchadnezzar episode, 70 years, and they rebuild the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah, what's absent from Ezra and Nehemiah when you read the Bible is the God's glory cloud never returns. So for Israel in the wilderness, in the Exodus, they saw God's glory cloud every single day. It led them by day and night. But now in the first century, all of Israel is gathered for this Feast of Booths to remember the Exodus and look forward to the future Exodus, and the temple is empty. It's empty because of Ezekiel 10 and 11. So here's Israel in the time of Jesus, gathering around the temple, celebrating the Exodus, looking to the new Exodus, hoping for the Messiah to come, and God's glory cloud is not in the Holy of Holies. And who is Jesus again? You know what? I, I can't remember 
Let's go back together to John chapter 1. Would you just look at John chapter 1 real quick? Let's just refresh our minds to make sure that this is... Remember what the Bible says. John 1, 14. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and... Yes and amen. That's where the King James and New King James gets it right. The word became flesh and dwelt, ESV readers, it's, the, it's tented, it's tabernacled. John is making a theological statement that one way that we view Jesus through the gospel account is the dwelling place of God, the glory cloud in is Christ himself with flesh on, dwelling among the people. The word became flesh and tented, boothed, tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When God became incarnate, the word becoming man, the glory of God's presence in the Exodus was now made flesh. He has a name, and it's Jesus. And that's why this whole section I've entitled The Irony of the Theological Setting. All the people are gathered reenacting the Exodus in which God was among his people. All the people are gathering around in Jerusalem because they're also looking forward to the future second Exodus. It's supposed to be their longing and they're gathered around the temple that is empty without God's presence and now the word became flesh the word with skin on is also the glory cloud with skin on. It's Jesus, and he's walking amongst them and into their midst. Can you see it cinematically? All the multitudes around, and here comes Jesus, secretly and privately, walking in the midst, and no one gets it. That God himself with skin on is walking among them to be a far better redeemer and messiah than they could possibly hope or imagine, and they want to kill him. So it's a bitter irony. It's a bitter irony. It makes us think of what we read back in John 2. I've mentioned it a few times already. John 2, 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So when John 2 went down, no one got it, not even the disciples. It took Jesus to die for the sins on the cross, raise from the grave, appear bodily, ascend into heaven. Then they remembered what he said, and they said, oh, that's what he meant. Jesus is the temple. So can you see the theological irony? There's a sad irony for the um, audience on the pages of Scripture, but there's a, there's a sweet mm, irony for the hearers of the Scripture, you and me. We, the readers, know that Jesus is the true dwelling place of God. Not a tent, not a cloud, a man the God-man, truly God and truly man. And more than that, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, not just a physical, political liberator. More than that, that will happen one day in the future when he returns, but now it's Jesus providing that removal of sin and the guilt 
that sin produces and the shame that, that sin produces. When Jesus went to the cross, he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves and wouldn't do for ourselves. Jesus went to the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world so that he could make you right with God. So that he could demonstrate God's great love and justice. How horrible, heinous, and eternally damning is your sin? Look at the cross. How glorious, wonderful, amazing, and eternally good is God's love for you? Look at the cross. And Jesus is the one who died and then rose. And so here's Israel camped in Jerusalem. The Messiah God-man walks into the midst. They mock, ridicule, and seek to kill him. And this is the theological irony John presents to us. The people are blind to who Jesus is. And it begs the question, are you as well? Or has the Lord given you eyes to see this loving and glorious Redeemer who knows all the horrible things about you, even your future horrible things, and loves you with an eternal love and took those horrible things, namely your sins, follies, and more, to the cross on your behalf. And so, friend, if you, if you don't know Jesus, this is an invitation this morning for you to see. It's an invitation for you to believe and to receive and to rejoice. In the same way that Israel in Egypt was powerless to deliver themselves, friend, understand, there's nothing that you can do in your life from your perspective that can outweigh your bad. Even if from this point on, somehow miraculously, on your own accord, you were to never sin again, your previous sins are still eternally damnable in hell, and God is right to do that. That's why he himself provided himself to be a savior for you. And that's a reminder for us also who do see Jesus and follow Jesus and love Jesus that we have a Savior who loves us with an unshakable love. You know, on a human level, there's this cliche saying that's true that you say about Israel and Egypt. You can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the people. And that was the problem. And that was one of the problems of the Old Covenant and Mosaic Covenant. The new covenant is required to take Egypt out of the people, so to speak. And here are the people in the promised land, looking at the promised one standing right before them, and they refuse to see and hear because Jesus says in verse 7, their works are evil. Or as verse 17 implies, they don't will to do God's will, so they're blind to Jesus. And so then this chapter 7 then is largely about the increasing rejection of Jesus. So what? What do we do with this? Let me give you three closing implications for our lives as we look at all that we've just seen. Number one, if you've been rejected by family because of Jesus, you're in good company. If you've been rejected by family because of Jesus, you're in good company. It's very painful and very sad to have family reject Jesus and therefore reject you because their rejection of you is ultimately a rejection of Jesus. And many of us can attest to the painful 
sad reality of that, especially when it's a child. Jesus does tell us in Mark 10, 29, that we do gain new family in Christ a hundredfold in this life and the next. That is true, and that is comforting. But when you are rejected by family because of Jesus, here's what you need to know. So was Jesus, and Jesus is there with you in your discomfort and pain. Jesus is there to comfort you and to walk with you and to never forget, dear friends, that Jesus is always working. You see, Jesus' brothers did become believers, but do you remember when? It was after Jesus died and then rose. And friends, it may be the same for you. There may be beloved family members who reject Jesus in your life now, and it's the testimony of your life and the testimony of your words that when Jesus brings you home and puts you into the dirt, that when you are buried, the seeds that you sown may now sprout from their own hearts. And what that means then is that you don't lose heart. We pray, we trust God, we keep loving, we wisely speak the gospel because family's tricky. We wisely speak the gospel. We live gospel-shaped lives. We let the gospel of grace permeate out of us. So theological implication number one, if you've been rejected by family because of Jesus, Jesus is with you. You're in good company. Number two, number two, and this is, relates to what I said at the beginning about the Bible beatdown and how the Pharisees acted. Number two, the implication is this. Use scripture to love others not to withhold love from others. The religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. They thought Jesus broke God's law, and therefore they wanted to kill him because of it. I think a functional equivalent of that episode today might be exposed by asking this question. Privately asking yourself this question. Who do you deem unworthy to hear the gospel? Well, we all know the Bible answer to that. Nobody, of course. Nobody, of course. Mark is clear. Jesus is clear in the gospel of Mark. Preach the gospel to all creation. Now, when I say who do you deem unworthy to hear the gospel, I don't mean that has this person earned a right from your perspective or they've earned enough to hear the gospel? I mean that you view someone, possibly, as so bad and so wrong and so other that you won't share the gospel with them. In our hyperpolarized age of outrage, the digital footprint of many Christians would seem to indicate that there are those on the other side of the fence who are so dangerous and so deplorable and so detestable that they're such an enemy of the gospel, they cannot be given the gospel. The antidote to all the ailments of the world and the antidote to all the problems we're seeing culturally is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
only the gospel of Jesus Christ and its attendant truths are themselves the truth and can obliterate false and deceptive philosophies that capture people. But I think the digital footprints of many Christians bear this out, case in point, Twitter. The lame man was a dirty outcast to the religious leaders, so they withheld their love from him. They walked around that guy, but Jesus came right towards him, just like he did with the Samaritan woman and all those dirty sinners who were so wrong-headed in their theology. Jesus went right to them, loved them, gave him life, and that enraged the self-righteous man-made rule keepers. The principle I see here is that we are supposed to use Scripture to love others, Believe it or not, even love our enemies. I think that's in the Bible. To love our enemies. Not to withhold love and hurt your enemies. So if you're going to use your digital footprint to expose the evils and wrongheadedness of evils and wrongheadedness of this world, don't lose sight of the gospel because that used to be you until Jesus saved you. And you're an ambassador of Christ. And the only antidote to what is being said or shown or done or perpetrated or whatever is the gospel. Your political stance is not the gospel. And you must separate the two. And use the gospel to call people to Christ and his truth. That's where we need to use scripture to love others not to withhold love from others. And finally, finally, and encouragingly, that was a rebuke, you are presently in the second exodus if you're in Christ. Did you know that? The second exodus um, isn't talked about a lot. And here we are as Christians in the middle of our own sanctification. We're in that in-between of Already, but not yet. So it is already, but it's not all not, it's still not yet. And there's these tensions. We have remaining sin. And, and did you know that one way the Bible portrays your life is that you are right now in the second exodus if you're in Christ? Just as the second generation out of Egypt was brought into the promised land, we too were brought into the promised land. The Feast of Booths looked back to the first exodus. It looked forward to the second exodus. Jesus is the Messiah. And when Jesus bore our sins on the cross, when he rose for our justification from the grave, when Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down next to the Father, when Jesus poured out his spirit, it began. And for 2,000 years, Jesus has been leading his people in the wilderness of our exile, not as punishment, but our deliverance from spiritual Egypt on the road to our new Eden, the new heavens and new earth. So that means that right now, in this very moment, you don't see him, but Jesus is closer to you now than he was when he was able to hug Peter or John. How can I say that? Because Jesus has poured out the spirit of Christ in you. We'll see that when we get to the upper room discourse. Jesus is with us, though you may not see him or feel him. Jesus is leading us by his spirit. And Jesus will bring you home. And friends, a day is coming when Jesus will make the new heavens and new earth. That's not a fairy tale. 
That's not a pipe dream. He is coming back. And he's going to do that. And 17.3 billion years from now, when we look back on this moment, we'll go, oh, it wasn't as long as it seemed in those moments when our pain, hardship, and suffering were unfolding. Jesus is, will, is with us. This life is a wilderness. There are scorpions. There are seasons of drought. There are hardships. And it's God's plan to have us here to shape us into the image of his son. There is a time when God will usher us into and then onto the white shores of glory and the far green country of his kindness. But it's not yet. So we're still in the wasteland. We're still growing in Christ together. It's a community project. We're still leading people to Jesus together. That's why he's left us here, to call the lost to be saved and to help the saved become more like Christ. We're saved but not yet home. The second generation out of Egypt persevered, feasted on manna, and followed God's fire cloud until they crossed the Jordan. And like them, we persevere, feasting on Christ who is the bread of life, and together following the leading of God's spirit through the word until one day we cross the Jordan into his presence. You are presently in, we are together sojourning in the second exodus. Amen? Father, thank you for your glory and grace. Lord, we confess that in some ways we might see our own selves in misusing your word to mistreat others. And so I pray, Lord, that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand and that you would give to us your love for the lost, that we would speak the truth in love. And we would know how to do that well, representing you well. Lord, protect us from tarnishing your name in a lost and dying world that what needs most is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we confess in this wilderness, we're prone to wander, we're prone to weariness, but you, Lord, are prone to love. And so God, use us as vehicles of your love to love one another, to know and follow Jesus. Father, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.